welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge. We're still remote because of COVID-19, so that means we're in three different locations. We're not really in a studio, so go with us on that. Anyway, Rich's guest this week is Barbara McQuaid, and we couldn't be happier to have her here. She's a fellow Michigander who back in 2013 as U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan was instrumental in the conviction of then Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick in what was the largest public corruption scandal in U.S. history. And she's now a law professor at the University of Michigan and among numerous accolades, she was awarded the Tribute of Justice Award by the Detroit branch of the NAACP and the Arab American Civil Rights League. Uh, she's also a huge Tiger fan, which is, makes her aces with me. Anyway, so this episode is actually very long, so we've made it into a two-parter. Uh, you'll hear the first part now, and the conclusion will be next week. So enough of all that. Let's join Rich and Barbara McQuaid's conversation in progress. Great. Thanks, Brian. Barbara McQuaid is a regular contributor on MSNBC. Uh, she is a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, she is a former United States attorney. Uh, her life story uh, is both inspiring and entertaining. Coming from the east side, she was a sports reporter and then a federal prosecutor, uh, and ultimately to the role she uh, plays today. Uh, Barb, I also understand that you're a, a very avid baseball fan, and this can't be a fun time. I love the Tigers, and I miss watching them and listening to them and reading about them. You know, I know that many people have sacrificed far more things, more important and significant things than baseball, but, you know, it's those diversions that help us get through the harder things in life. So I miss it, and I hope it's back soon. Indeed, I, I share that, and I want to see the Tigers and the Red Wings and the Pistons and the Lions and the Wolverines uh, uh, and the Spartans, all right, not to leave anybody out here, get back uh, on, on the field. Uh, so after law school, Barb McQuaid was a clerk with the federal judge and then with the prestigious law firm Butzel Long for five years. And Barb, I think I have this right. You were assistant U.S. attorney for 12 years, and then you were appointed as one of the 93 United States attorneys, this for the Eastern District of Michigan by President Barack Obama, and you were in that job for seven years. Yes, that's right. And uh, you worked on uh, national security, you worked on public corruption, and we are going to talk a little bit about some of the public corruption cases. And I, I was intrigued when I was reading your background that you could not leave the U.S. attorney role and go back to becoming an assistant U.S. attorney. There was a reference made to something called anti-burrowing. What's, what's anti-burrowing? Yes. Um, so sadly, when I uh, left being U.S. attorney, I couldn't go back to being an assistant U.S. attorney, which is a job I love. But the idea is that if you are appointed uh, into a political position, that you shouldn't be able to then uh, stay on permanently. You are there um, because you are a political appointee. And, and when you are replaced by a new president who gets to appoint a new political appointee, you can't stay on as a permanent employee. And so... Um, that is something I explored because, you know, my situation had been a little different having been uh, an assistant U.S. attorney uh, before I was U.S. attorney. So I, I actually called the executive office for assistant U.S. attorneys uh, on the day after the election in November of 2016 to ask whether those there was any way around those regulations and whether I couldn't return, even if not to Detroit, then perhaps to the Flint or Bay City offices. Uh, and they spent a couple of days researching it for me, uh, but the answer was no. And so sadly, I, I had to leave. Well, it uh, turned out to have a good outcome as you are now a professor for the University of Michigan Law School and regular uh, commentator on MSNBC. And I, I think it's really an interesting background as U.S. attorney. I, I believe your first day on the job the underwear bomber flew into Detroit. That was on Christmas Eve in 2009, and you prosecuted that case. You also put away Farid Fatah, who misdiagnosed hundreds of cancer patients. And then there was the Takata settlement 
uh, over the airbags. Uh, what a role are you playing today with University of Michigan and, and how often do you get out on MSNBC? And I know you've, you've written some columns for USA Today and what's your job today? Well, I'm a full-time professor at the University of Michigan. I have a job known as professor from practice. And so there are about five or six of us who uh, didn't come up through the academic ranks, but who have been practicing lawyers and are now teaching at the law school. And it's a nice compliment to those who are research scholars to bring some real world practice to uh, legal education. And I teach criminal law, criminal procedure, and a course called National Security and Civil Liberties. So I spend uh, uh, the bulk of my time teaching, which I love. Uh, you know, we work with incredibly bright students who want to uh, use their talent and skills to make the world a better place. And it's great to be able to just share with them some of the things I've learned in practice. But the other great thing about being a professor is it gives you a platform to have a voice. And so uh, I have uh, done legal commentary. As you said, I'm a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. And um, I get a lot of invitations to write for USA Today and the Washington Post and um, other publications on legal questions. And, you know, my, my goal in all of it is really just to try to provide information and explain so that people can form their own opinions about things. Sometimes the law can sound more complicated than it really is. And just by breaking it down and explaining it, I hope to help people understand. Well, I hope that this podcast can be a step in that direction. And uh, we don't have time to cover everything that you've got expertise in, but I'd like to spend a little time today on a few topics. Uh, Kwame Kilpatrick uh, is back in the news. Uh, we've heard a lot lately about the Michael Flynn case and collusion uh, investigations, the FBI, and there's terms like unmasking being thrown around. Uh, we've covered some of the you know, stresses around COVID-19, and that's brought the law and the legal backdrop into play again. And of course, uh, the just tragic killing of George Floyd and the horrible aftermath um, so today, listeners on The Common Bridge will hear from a real expert from a legal perspective, and I anticipate some education and perhaps some policy idea takeaways. So, Barbara, a couple of minutes on uh, Kwame Kilpatrick, the former mayor of Detroit, Michigan. What was Kwame Kilpatrick convicted of? Yeah, so with regard to Kwame Kilpatrick, first, let me say, Rich, I'm happy to talk with you about all the things that are in the public record about his case. But, um, of course, anything pertaining to um, his request for pardons or commutations, I need to defer to my successor, Matthew Schneider, who now runs the U.S. Attorney's Office. He is certainly well-equipped, and yes. he's, it is within his authority to answer any of those questions. But, but the conviction certainly is a matter of public record. He was convicted of 24 counts of bribery, extortion, fraud, and tax offenses, and they revolved around uh, abuse of his office as mayor to obtain money for himself and his friends and his family. Um, mostly he used his power to uh, steer public works contracts, um, and he used that power to divert $83 million worth of public contracts to his friend Bobby Ferguson, who was also convicted. Um, and one thing that I thought was so important about that case, Rich, was that it was not just Kwame Kilpatrick, but 30 members of his administration and those doing business with the city were convicted uh, of federal offenses as part of that investigation. And it, it really showed a, a culture of corruption that he created within the mayor's office. Um, and uh, I was very proud of the team of prosecutors, agents, and support staff who worked very hard to put that case together and bring him to justice during a time when Detroit was going, you know, on the brink of bankruptcy and was certainly in no position to afford that kind of loss. I was actually going to ask you how the crimes were discovered, but you know, with that many people involved and that many counts, it seems almost impossible that they could have been hidden for very long. Yeah, there were. Um, you know, we had been hearing for years from people who would report that they had been shaken down was often the phrase, that they were uh, directed to pay bribes if they wanted to be able to do business with the city of Detroit. Uh, some payments had to be made to the mayor's father, Bernard Kilpatrick, who was also convicted of tax offenses as part of uh, the investigation. And they had to hire Bobby Ferguson as the excavator on any deal that they had put together for construction. Um, 
there are a couple of things that really broke open the case because we were hearing from all of these people and kind of putting together these different threads of various schemes. But two big breaks, I think, really made a difference in the case. And it really shows how important it is that we have various uh, watchdogs throughout our system. One was when um, Kim Worthy at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office convicted Kwame Kilpatrick for perjury in the case involving uh, Gary Brown brought uh, as a whistleblower when he was fired uh, relating to their his relationship with Christine Beattie. Um, when he left office, suddenly people who had been afraid to talk to federal investigators suddenly felt um, free to talk. I think they had been worried about repercussions when he was the mayor. And once he was out of office, uh, people came out of the woodwork to share their story. The other big break was the Detroit Free Press, our, you know, the value of our free press, uh, published a story printing dozens and dozens of uh, text messages between Mayor Kilpatrick and Christine Beatty. Now, their focus was about their romantic relationship because that went to his perjury. But it occurred to our team that if there were text messages relating to that, then perhaps there were also text messages relating to some of these extortion schemes we had been hearing about from so many of these contractors. And so uh, our team used a search warrant to obtain all of those text messages. And sure enough, they found tremendous evidence to support those allegations. And so at trial, rather than simply having a business person testify that they were asked to pay a bribe in order to get government business, in addition, uh, we could show the text message that occurred right after that meeting where Bobby Ferguson is reporting to Kwame Kilpatrick or someone else within the administration that they just had a meeting with this person and told him he needed to hire Bobby Ferguson if he wanted to be able to do business with the city. And so that kind of independent corroboration gave uh, extra credibility to the statements of witnesses who can sometimes be attacked as being biased or disgruntled or having some sort of ax to grind. Uh, but when you have that sort of objective uh, testimony. It's very difficult to cross-examine text messages. Um, we had enough of those that really built the case. So those two breaks really, I think, demonstrated the importance of having multiple watchdogs on the scene. Well, and that's uh, so germane to much of what we're hearing on the national front today from the watchdog agencies, the inspectors general, and the text messaging and people conducting their romance inside of their employment and letting that bleed over. I know that you've asked not to talk about any of the sentences or any of the commutations or anything like that, so I won't. Um, but I know that uh, not only on the Kwame case, but on many other cases that there is the suggestion of home release. So Paul Manafort, for example, got home release. And how does that work? I mean, can people just go home and watch Netflix and get on their computer? Can they have friends over? You know, can they you know, have a drink, you know, the whole state has kind of gone through that. Everybody stay at home. And I'm thinking that doesn't seem very fair. It, <laughs> it doesn't sound too bad after we've all done it, right? Right. And so is, is home release just that, like just stay in your house, like 10 million Michiganders were asked to do, or is it, are there further restrictions beyond that? There are further restrictions typically. Now it's going to depend on the jurisdiction and on the individual offender. Um, most often, the offender is uh, going to be monitored. So wearing an ankle bracelet, that's a little different, I think, than we have been accustomed to, and are not permitted to leave the house except with permission. So whereas you and I might be able to you know, dash off to the grocery store anytime we want to, uh, someone on home confinement is going to have close supervision by some sort of parole or probation officer. And so uh, typically, they do get permission to leave for things like medical appointments, um, religious worship. Um, counseling sessions and things like that, but otherwise must stay at home. So they've got a little bit of uh, more oversight than the rest of us have. Um, some are forbidden from drinking alcohol or other things if there has been a problem with that. But I think the general restriction is avoiding excess use of alcohol. Um, and in terms of visitors, especially if you're living with other people, uh, I think it is permitted. You know, just you're invited, you're allowed to have visitors in jail as well. There are reasons that they need, from, for administrative reasons, to restrict the hours and number of visitors because they've got to deal with an entire jail population. But if you're just living home on your own, there aren't those additional reasons to uh, avoid visitors. So I think unless you have 
some specific restriction prohibiting visitors, you are allowed to have them. But I don't, I, th- I don't think we should portray it as any walk in the park. Um, it's certainly uh, nicer to be home than it is to be in prison. But I think with this oversight and uh, ankle monitoring, it is more restrictive than what we've been experiencing during stay, stay home orders. Oh, great. I appreciate the, the background on that. Let's uh, shift over a little bit to General Michael Flynn, if we could. And you know, I think most people are familiar with the general contours that uh, General Flynn worked for and was ultimately fired by President Obama. Uh, he was a very, very active participant in the campaign uh, for Donald Trump. And upon the election of Donald Trump, as the 45th president of the United States. He was appointed national security advisor. And then he had some calls with the Russian ambassador that were monitored. And my understanding of that is that all the foreign nationals have their calls monitored. And then was investigated by the FBI at the White House. And we had uh, Ken Chatwell on, who was assistant uh, U.S. attorney um, in Detroit as well, to explain that. Uh, to us. But for General Flynn, what crime or crimes did he plea to? And, and, you know, I'm just, how serious are these crimes? How typical are they? And what would be a a, a typical penalty for a, a person like this? He pleaded guilty to making false statements to the FBI. There were a couple of different topics that he admitted to lying about. One related to a United Nations vote that he discussed with the Russian ambassador, and the other related to sanctions Um, that the U.S. government had imposed against Russia in retaliation for interfering with the election. And so on the day the sanctions were imposed, there is a recording that has the transcript of which has recently been released in which Michael Flynn uh, talks about, uh, uh, don't, don't, we don't want to get boxed in. um, So don't respond. If you can only respond in kind and not elevate what you're doing in response um, is what he requests of the ambassador. When he was interviewed about those statements uh, with the FBI, he denied making them. Um, this charge, false statements, is one that is used very frequently in the federal government. It is uh, sometimes dismissed by critics as a mere process crime. But um, if you work in the criminal justice system, this is a very serious crime because it goes to the very heart of the system. Uh, investigators cannot uncover the truth when people lie to them. And so it is an inducement to tell people the truth if they know that lying is a a crime and that there are criminal penalties associated with it. You know, Martha Stewart is a famous example of someone who was charged with this crime. The penalties are up to five years, although oftentimes the actual sentencing guidelines and, and punishment is less than that. I think Michael Flynn negotiated a sentence of zero to six months. And it's also important to note that this crime was charged as part of a negotiated plea. And so, um, you know, he admitted in his statement of offense document that got filed with his plea agreement that in addition to the lies to the FBI, he had also lied to the Department of Justice on his official notification forms about his lobbying activity on behalf of the government of Turkey. He had uh, been doing things like writing an op-ed on the behalf of the government of Turkey, uh, that he uh, denied their role behind. Um, there's also been reporting about a plot to kidnap a Turkish cleric, but he has not admitted to that and hasn't been charged with that. So I don't know whether that ever went anywhere. But one of the things that's important to remember is that um, charges are often the result of some sort of negotiation and compromise. And so he agreed to plead guilty to false statements and to cooperate. Um, And part of that agreement is that means the government's going to stop investigating him now for other crimes and crimes that could have more serious consequences. So in some ways, when this when he first entered that guilty plea, I thought that was an awfully lenient deal that he got zero to six months. But he did agree to cooperate against others, which perhaps had greater value to uh, Robert Mueller and his investigators than securing additional prison time for Michael Flynn. Yeah. And I had read that that the special prosecutor uh, said that General Flynn gave, uh, quote, substantial assistance in his recommendation for no jail time. What would be categories of substantial assistance or perhaps some examples of substantial assistance 
to basically back off prosecuting or investigating further. Yeah, we um, at the U.S. Attorney's Office frequently entered into similar plea agreements with defendants and offered to provide them a recommendation for a lower sentence or to even um, refrain from filing additional charges if they provided what is known as a term of art substantial assistance. And that can consist of a couple of things. One is information that is helpful in the investigation of crimes of other people. And so it might be information you can put into a search warrant. They might agree to testify at a grand jury about somebody. They might agree to testify at trial about somebody. Any of those things could amount to substantial assistance. And a prosecutor will make known the agreement to uh, the, the assistance to the court so that the court can take it into account in deciding a punishment that's appropriate. In addition to criminal substantial assistance, it can also uh, count as substantial assistance if the person offers information that has intelligence value to the government. So even if it is not actionable um, in terms of in court, if they tell the government something that has value to the intelligence community about uh, the way a foreign adversary conducts business, about who might be involved in uh, working with a foreign government, any of those kinds of things could also amount to substantial assistance. In Michael Flynn's case, I don't know all the things that he told Robert Mueller, but he did provide a number of debriefings. Um, A number of quotations show up in Robert Mueller's report from Michael Flynn. Um, And so it suggests to me that perhaps he shared with Mueller and his team uh, some of his conversations with um, other members of the Trump transition team. And he had also agreed to be a witness in a trial against his former business partner named Bijan Rafikian. But Michael Flynn stopped cooperating before his trial last summer, and so he never did testify in that case, even though I think that was the original plan when they entered into this uh, plea agreement. So he agreed to give substantial assistance, but before that substantial assistance could materialize, he said, okay, I'm not going to cooperate anymore. Am I understanding that correctly? I think that's right. Yep. Now, he may have given some um, uh, information before he got to that point that they considered to have value. But um, at some point last summer, he switched, got lawyer, a new lawyer and uh, decided to stop cooperating. It may have been that um, you know, once he saw the outcome of the Mueller report, he had a change of heart in terms of his decision to cooperate. I don't know. But um, uh, that's likely what caused him to um, not want to continue cooperating against his business partner, Rafikian. And once you have someone who's not um, interested in being cooperative, I think the, the Justice Department decided not to call him as a witness uh, out of concern that he would not be helpful after all. But they still didn't change their sentencing recommendation. That seems like they would have said, fine, you're on your own then. They, they continued to go forward with the plan, I think, as of the early part of this year, when they um, were continuing to seek zero to six months, at some point, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office changed its recommendation to probation from zero to six months. So, um, you know, we've got a change in leadership at the Department of Justice from the time the special counsel filed these charges. He closed up shop last summer. And now we have William Barr's attorney is the attorney general. We've got his uh, close aide is now the acting U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, and we've seen a shift in the way they have approached this case. Yes, I, my understanding, again, from a lay perspective, is that the new lawyers for uh, General Flynn told him they wanted the plea withdrawn, and that the Barr Justice Department said they had no objection. And, and that's a, a topic I wanted to dive into just a little bit. What if the prosecution objects to the withdrawal of a plea? So, you know, person A has pled guilty to charge Y and then comes later and says, you know, no, I don't want to plea to that. What happens if the prosecution says, no, we're not going to let you withdraw? Well, withdrawing from a plea is quite rare. Um, There are a couple different ways that uh, the federal rules treat that. And part of it depends on which part of the federal rule they've operated under. If the parties reached an agreement for a specific sentence, say they negotiated the sentence will be probation, 
and they go before a court and the court says, I can't accept that because I think probation is just too low. If that is to happen because they proceeded under that rule where they agreed on a specific sentence, the defendant is allowed to withdraw his plea as a matter of law under the, under the rule. What we have here instead, though, is the different scenario, which is a recommendation. And when the parties are simply recommending a sentence, typically the defendant is not allowed to withdraw his plea unless he can show a just and fair reason. Now, that also is pretty rare. It can't be just, I've changed my mind. Uh, now that I've thought about it further, I, 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 I regret my decision and I want to go to trial. He has to argue something like um, actual innocence might be a reason that is just and fair. You know, if there's new evidence to suggest that he's not guilty of the, the crime, that would be a reason to accept, uh, for a judge to accept that. Um, he may say that uh, something about the process was unfair, that he wasn't really, uh, it wasn't a voluntary and knowing plea, for example, that might be a basis. But in that instance, it would be up to the judge to decide whether to allow a defendant to withdraw his plea. And, and that is something during all of this communication. And frankly, uh, there were a lot of terms thrown around. So I will try my best to ask you questions about what I've heard. So First up, they said there was something called the, quote, Brady rule. What is it, and does it have the force of law? Yes, the Brady rule does have the force of law. It is um, an obligation every prosecutor takes very seriously. It comes from a case called Brady versus Maryland. And under the Brady rule, the government may not suppress material evidence that negates guilt or punishment. And each of those words... Um, is meaningful. So, for example, if the information is equally available to the defendant, then it's not suppressed. Um, it must be material. That is, it must make a difference in the outcome of the case. It has to negate guilt or punishment. It has to be evidence. And so, um, it, it is uh, a violation is considered unethical, and it can result in the reversal of a conviction if information um, is not turned over. So, that might be that accusations of exculpatory evidence being uh, withheld by the prosecutor. And that led me to the question, are there defined limits that investigators and prosecutors have in getting that guilty plea? Like kind of accepted boundaries, either by the law or by practice, like you can do this, but you can't do that. Yes. Um, so in, in uh, talking about Brady material, for example, um, a true Brady violation can only occur after a defendant is convicted at trial, and it turns out that there was information that was withheld. But as an ethical matter, the Department of Justice requires that Brady material be disclosed to the defense uh, reasonably promptly upon its discovery. And so uh, it is something that a defendant is uh, likely to want to see pre-plea, uh, because not only is there an assessment of whether he is or isn't guilty of the crime, but whether the government can prove it. And if there is significant exonerating evidence, number one, he might it might go to actual innocence, but it also might go to uh, the inability of the government to prove the case. And so even though uh, the law does not require Brady material to be turned over before a plea, the DOJ internal policy does. I'll give you an example. If, um, say, there's a bank robbery case that you're prosecuting and you did a lineup where you had the bank teller come in and look at a number of suspects. And the bank teller picked out someone um, that's different from the person charged with the robbery. You would have an obligation under the Brady rule to tell the defense about that, that incorrect uh, selection by the bank teller that they picked someone other than the defendant, because that would give the defense the opportunity to, at the very least, cross-examine that bank teller about her faulty selection so that the jury could know about that, uh, that she had identified the wrong person and perhaps suggest that uh, the defendant is the wrong person. And so not only does that information have to be produced before trial, but under the policy at DOJ, that should also be produced before a guilty plea, as long as it's discovered. Now, if it's information that arises later, that's different. But um, if the prosecution has it, ethically, he should share that with the defense so that they can make 
uh, an accurate assessment of the strength of the government's case. That really gives me a lot of clarity and understanding in that my reading uh, about the Flynn case and indeed reading some of the pleadings and, and transcripts, it seemed to be a question of that parallel of, well, yeah, we knew someone else said you didn't do this or you know, other exculpatory evidence they didn't give to him to weigh in whether he should pursue the plea. And I, of course, you know, we had the situation that the then FBI Director Comey said he thought he could get away with these surprise visits by the agents. You know, is that par for the course or is that, I mean, how unusual would something like that be? Just kind of ambushing a guy like that, if that's not too strong of a term. I don't know. You know, um, I think it's highly unusual that anybody's interviewed at their job at the White House. I've never been involved in ad- advising anyone on that. Um, but if there are no charges pending, um, there's really nothing wrong with FBI agents approaching someone and asking them questions. Uh, they can always say, I don't want to talk with you without a lawyer. Uh, and they'd have to go away and wait for the lawyer to appear. And so I think... Um, Michael Flynn probably got treated the way everybody else gets treated without any special considerations. If any, either of us were um, under investigation, I think it's quite likely the FBI would show up at our door at 7 a.m. before we've had a chance to leave and ask if they can talk with us. We, we have the right to decline, uh, but I think that happens um, as a routine matter. And, and then, you know, uh, I, I, I do want to say just a further word tying this to our discussion about Brady material. So under federal law, Brady material must be evidence. And so the idea that uh, simply someone mistreated him or uh, you know interviewed him by ambush or uh, had an opinion, you know, I know there have been some talk about um, the rough notes of agents that didn't get turned over, and some have suggested that that's Brady material. Brady material is evidence that negates the guilt or uh, punishment of a defendant. And so remember, his crime here is lying to the FBI. Um, just because agents mused about what their goal might be or the strategy for how to approach an interview um, does not negate his guilt or innocence. And so uh, there are um, lots of things that might end up in a case file that do not amount to Brady material. And I haven't seen anything in this case. And I think Judge Sullivan ruled that there was no Brady violation uh, in a failure to turn over any of these materials uh, to Michael Flynn. And that's a great leap off point to the next look at this, because my understanding is that the the defendant, General Flynn, says, I I want to withdraw my plea, and that the Department of Justice is not coming in and said, no, wait a minute, we got this plea fair and square. They're saying, well, we're not sure that that stands anymore. It doesn't serve the interest of, of justice and that it can go, now it's up to the judge. And then there is something, I'm trying to pronounce this correctly, an amicus or an amicus brief that is going to be filed or has been filed. What is an amicus brief and can anyone do it? And how does it apply to this case in particular? Yeah, this case has become very unusual and very complicated in what on its face is a very simple uh, charge of you know one count of false statements. Um, One of the things that has happened is in response to Michael Flynn's motion to uh, withdraw his guilty plea is the Justice Department filed a motion to dismiss the charge. And it said that it um, did did not believe that it could prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt because um, it could not prove the element of materiality. And the reason it could not uh, prove the element of materiality, and materiality means that it was important fact, you know. So if if uh, you'd asked General Flynn um, uh, what his favorite flavor of ice cream is during that day, and he had said vanilla, but in fact it's chocolate, uh, that would not be material to their investigation. But anything that has a tendency to influence the investigative steps uh, is material, and so it's a very low bar. And so lying about something that precludes agents from asking follow-up questions is certainly material. Um, And the reason the government says it's not material is that the investigation was not properly predicated. And again, it's a very low bar to determine what is predication. Predication is really just um, an articulable factual basis that either a crime has been committed or a threat to the national security exists. 
such that an investigation can be begun. And the reason that rule is there is just to prevent harassment of people that is completely baseless and without any foundation whatsoever. And so these are some curious arguments for the Justice Department to make. Um, it is These are arguments that you don't usually see the Justice Department make. In fact, you see them make just the opposite arguments. And I think that um, before a court may allow the Justice Department to dismiss an, an indictment or charges, there is a rule, Rule 48 of the Rules of Criminal Procedure, that says that they have to obtain leave of court or approval of the court before they may dismiss an indictment. And so um, they filed this motion to dismiss with the judge. I think the judge found this argument to be just as curious as I find it and wants to know and ensure that he is not being some sort of party to corruption, that the Justice Department is not changing its position in this case simply because Michael Flynn is a close associate of the president. And so he is appointed uh, what is referred to as an amicus, which is a friend of the court. Um, it's rare that courts do this, but it happens from time to time. In fact, Judge Sullivan himself did it in a prosecution against former uh, Alaska Senator Ted Stevens in a case that uh, involved public corruption that unraveled a bit. And he appointed a prosecutor there to assist him in sorting this out. You know, it's kind of beyond the court's expertise to figure out what's the proper thing for the government to be doing here. But I think he just wants to um, be comfortable that there is no foul play about and that, in fact, this is an appropriate exercise of the discretion of the Justice Department. So he appointed a former judge and former federal prosecutor named John Gleason. He prosecuted John Gotti in the Eastern District of New York, Brooklyn, back in the day, and was a longtime uh, judge there who's now retired to help him sort through how he should be thinking about whether he should grant uh, this leave to allow dismissal under Rule 48. What's slightly different about this case from most cases I've ever seen where you move to dismiss an indictment, and we've done it. I've done it where a defendant has died. I've done it where the court has suppressed evidence um, that was obtained in a search warrant because it ruled that it was beyond the scope of a warrant, um, where a witness has died and is no longer able to testify, or you've learned something that makes you have some doubts about whether the defendant's really guilty. In those instances, it's the right thing to do to file a motion to dismiss the case, and the court readily grants it. I've never filed a motion to dismiss a case after the defendant has pleaded guilty. Um, under the rules, a defendant is deemed convicted upon the acceptance of his guilty plea, and Judge Sullivan did accept the guilty plea of Michael Flynn in this case. And so all that's left for prosecution is the sentencing. Ordinarily, I do agree with the principle that the separation of powers says that it is for prosecutors to, to decide which cases should be brought as a matter of their own priorities and discretion and resources and assessment of the strength of the evidence. But here we're in a very odd posture just because all that work has already been done and the only thing left is sentencing. And so in many ways, really, the ball is in the judge's court. And so I think to satisfy himself that it is proper to grant this motion to dismiss and that he is not uh, becoming a party to any sort of corrupt scheme, Judge Sullivan has taken the extraordinary step of appointing an amicus to help him sort through it. I applaud the judge for the care in that, you know, if he just accepted the withdrawal of the plea, um, he could subject himself to a lot of speculation and this will never end. You know, from my perspective as a citizen, let's have an all out hearing with, you know, adversarial amicus uh, versus the Justice Department and the defense and let's get it all out there and let America see this and such. Barbara, are there any policies or laws that are missing or, or need to be reconfigured around this? Or is this just so rare that we're just going to muddle through it with the amicus? Yeah, I don't know that we need to change any rules. You know, um, the, the, the latest thing that we have on this is that Flynn himself, his lawyers, have filed a motion for the Court of Appeals to put a halt to what Judge Sullivan is trying to do. Uh, they filed something f requesting a, a writ of mandamus, which is an order to a judge to immediately uh, enter an order where a defendant has a clear right to relief. Uh, and that court has asked for briefs from the parties, which were filed on Monday. So um, it is getting a little crazy, but um, we'll see resolution there and we'll move on. I don't think um, it's the rules that need to be changed. I, I think, um, you know, my, my personal view 
is that this Justice Department has done some things to call their integrity into question. We saw William Barr uh, jump in and direct that the sentencing for recommendation for Roger Stone be reduced. Uh, and now we see um, his uh, U.S. attorney jumping in um, into the Flynn case and uh, moving to dismiss charges that were brought by the special counsel, which seems like an end run around the work of the special counsel. And so um, I have concerns about that. I, I guess if I were to say one thing that would have been helpful is I think the special counsel closed up shop too soon. He closed up shop uh, at the end of last summer, and I think he had um, confidence in the Justice Department to see these cases through to completion. All that remained were the trial of Roger Stone and then his sentencing and the sentencing of Michael Flynn, and I think he figured those were routine matters that could be handled by competent lawyers. But we have seen the case lawyers withdraw from these cases. One even resigned from the Justice Department over the intervention uh, by the attorney general in these cases. And so I think that um, he has undermined the purposes of the special counsel rule. And so um, I think that um, the, the lesson here is if you employ a special counsel, you need to keep him on the job all the way till the end of the cases. As you said, it is very complicated. And I can't find uh, issue with saying this should have gone to completion. Uh, but perhaps the special counsel did not know about the claim around the Brady rule and exculpatory evidence kind of changing the landscape. And I, I hope that we'll have some time near the end of this session today to talk about Roger Stone and uh, his case, uh, because a lot of that's very murky uh, for me as well. But I, I want to kind of try to stay on this because with Flynn, you know, the, the concern of the country, rightly so, was, you know, was our president or and or his campaign and or people in it compromised by a hostile foreign actor. And, you know, the Horowitz report, Inspector General Horowitz report um, has been out for some time. I actually posted it on my website. Uh, it's pretty scathing on what the FISA application, the errors that were made in there. And indeed, Acting Attorney General Rod Rosenstein said yesterday that he would not have signed the FISA warrant to allow the surveillance of Carter Page uh, had he known that he was being presented with information that he that was known to be false. And the question I have, this may be something that we need to talk to someone else about, but I look at what the inspector general said. I look at what the undisputed conduct at the FBI has been. And I just want to know, is this standard operating procedure for the FBI? And, you know, since the FBI was founded, we've had issues with the directors kind of getting full of their own power from, you know, J. Edgar Hoover forward. Or was this a targeted abuse going after the Trump campaign and Carter Page? Or was it something else entirely? That's what I'm troubled by, that I, I can't seem to make sense of that. We know that they, that they gave false information on the FISA applications, and it was confirmed again yesterday. But is that something they just got sloppy with and just got used to doing, or were they targeting this one case? Yeah, I think if you look at the Horowitz report and the subsequent uh, review he did of the FISA process, um, the conclusion is that they were very sloppy and it's unacceptable and they need to make substantial changes to the FISA process. But um, it's important here to engage in some nuanced thinking. And I think that so many people read headlines um, and think everything has to be all good or all bad and um, are unable to see the, the distinction. So it's important to keep in mind a couple things. One is uh, Horowitz, the inspector general said, the Russia investigation was properly authorized was properly predicated, and there was no evidence of political bias in the investigation. So I think those are really important things, and they were his top-line findings. The next thing is um, the FISA process was an absolute mess in this case. He then looked at 25 random other cases and found it to be an absolute mess in those other 25 cases as well. As a former prosecutor who relied on this process, um, where there must be um, excruciating attention to detail to find out that it's not done is deeply troubling and suggests that we need to reinvent the way we do FISA applications. But it was not unique to this case. It's also important to remember that the FISA application related only 
to Carter Page during a time when he was no longer affiliated with the Trump campaign. And so um, I think many people try to focus on the so-called Steele dossier, which was an important part of what went into this, the, the Page application, and the Page FISA to mean that means the whole Russia investigation was illegitimate uh, or, or a hoax or um, a witch hunt or something. And think of it this way. Number one, Robert Mueller did not use any evidence obtained from the Page FISA in his 400-page report. Um, it, a way to think about it is, imagine you have built uh, a house on a solid foundation, and then you added a sunroom that was built with faulty materials and fell apart. That is the Page FISA application. The house with the strong foundation is the main Russia investigation. Well, we know today that the steel reporting, and which was referenced frequently by um, Inspector General, and we know today that it was funded by the Clinton campaign and by the Democratic National Committee uh, going through Perkins Coy law firm uh, to Fusion GPS and then to Christopher Steele, and that we know that that made it into the hands of the director of the FBI, James Comey, and we know by Comey's own words that he used the Steele dossier, a selection of it, the most salacious part of it, um, in a, not a defensive briefing, but a briefing to the president, and he said, I wanted to get a special prosecutor appointed. So I don't think there's any question that the Steele dossier is in the center of this and that it was referenced. It was referred to, well, it came from a political providence, but it didn't explain to the judge of the FISA court where it came from and who paid for it. And I read all about the predication, and, and I agree that the, as the inspector general said, that the investigation was begun there. Um, and of course, you want to be extra careful here. But now, as we heard yesterday's testimony, that there was additional questions around predication, the FBI agent saying, you know, there's no there there, and that the, the Logan Act hasn't been used since 1790, and that um, uh, George Papadopoulos saying that accepting the, any emails would have been illegal. Um, we know that it, and Director McCabe lied under oath. Uh, this all came out yesterday. When I think about how these players operate, I can only speculate how they exchange um, information. But the notion that Carter Page was somehow a Russian asset, you know, I guess somebody can decide that, and I, I'm not in a position to say whether they uh, were or weren't. But one thing I did want to ask today is that the scope of the FBI, where they end and the rest of the DOJ takes up, or the intelligence agencies, and you know, what is this whole notion of unmasking? It seems like it's fairly common, like our current administration's used it like 10,000 times in a year. Is that something that, that you have experience with? Yeah, so just a couple of things. I mean, one is uh, with regard to disclosing to the court the origins of the Steele dossier. Um, you know, the government includes in search warrant applications and other surveillance requests uh, to courts information from shady characters all the time. But it's okay as long as the court knows it's from a shady character because then the court can assess uh, the veracity of the statements. And so in the FISA application, uh, there was a footnote that said that Steele was hired by, I'm reading now from the application, from the IG's report, Steele was hired by an identified U.S. person to conduct research regarding candidate one, and it says in parentheses Donald Trump, candidate one's ties to Russia, and the FBI speculates that this U.S. person was likely looking for information that could be used to discredit the Trump campaign. And so, no, it doesn't say it was hired by Hillary Clinton, but it says the worst thing you could imagine about her, which is that the whole purpose of his work was to discredit Trump's campaign. And so, that gave, I think, the court all it needed to know to assess um, the credibility of the source. Um, and there were a number of factors that they included about Carter Page beyond that, um, about his connections with, uh, with Russia, a statement that he had an open checkbook from Russians to fund a think tank project um, that he had coordinated with um, 
Russian government that he had been seen meeting with a number of different Russians. To me, the most um, problematic of all of those things is that they failed to indicate to the FISA court that Page had also been an asset of the CIA. In fact, they wrote in that he was not a source, which was technically correct because it was different terminology, but he had been working with the CIA, which could perhaps explain some of his suspicious contacts with Russia. And I think that omission um, is uh, is a really important one. But back to your is question that the, about- Is that, the, that part about where they, he, it wasn't explained that he was a CIA asset. Mm-hmm. Was that where there was a email that said, hey, he, hey, wait a minute, this is one of ours. And it was modified to make it look like exactly the opposite. And I think the was the lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith, if memory serves me correctly? Yes, I don't remember the name of the lawyer, but um, someone asked, can you, you know, can you verify this? Was he or was he not um, a source of the CIA? And CIA uses different terminology. And so, you know, I forget what they call them, but um, asset is the generic term. And so CIA, you know, and they're different categories. And so I think that statement was probably technically true, but misleading to suggest the opposite. And I know that there's been a referral for criminal investigation about his intent. What did he mistakenly think he was clarifying by uh, stating um, an, an accurate but misleading statement by saying he was not a quote source when in fact he was uh, an asset? You know, there are different categories of people who are tasked or paid or they're just there to listen and report back on anything they may have observed. And I think Carter Page fell into a different category than source, but I think it was really more of a different kinds of uh, terminology that they used. Now, it could have been an innocent mistake, or it could have been a criminal effort to deliberately mislead. And I think that there is an investigation going into why why he included those words and what his intent was in doing so. But nonetheless, the reader found uh was misled into thinking that meant he had no affiliation with the CIA uh when in fact he did and that i think perhaps provides a more benign explanation for why he was meeting with russians than uh the rest of the application suggested and, and to me that's the most troubling part of that because uh, a lot of it is just failure to corroborate certain things not that they were false but that's the one uh that i think affirmatively changes the view of whether there was sufficient probable cause to obtain a FISA warrant. Yes. And this is where the common bridge comes in is whether a person, you know, is an ardent fan of our current administration or is a, is just repulsed by this current administration or anything in between administrations come and administrations go, but the institutions that you know, you've devoted your life to protecting and keeping the ethics and the integrity, that's what holds everything together. And I just want them to play by the rules and yeah, do all the things you need to do to protect us from hostile foreign actors and cyber criminals and corrupt officials, public or private. But you know, don't put your finger on the scale and, and treat everybody um, apolitically. And maybe that's too much to, to, to um, hope for. Okay, I think this is going to be our stopping point for part one of Rich Helpy's interview with Barbara McQuaid. Um, I think this has been fantastic, and the second half is terrific. And you can hear that uh, a week from today, next Tuesday, um, for part two of this. But again, you know, thanks for listening in, and uh, we'll see you next week. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast. Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.